to Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll read from verse 18 to the end. Hebrews 13, verses 18 through 25. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. As we come to these closing verses of the epistle to the Hebrews, we see the author presenting to us, presenting to his readers three matters, three matters which we want to look at this afternoon. It's very simple. One, a prayer request. Two, a benediction. And three, closing greetings. So let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, a prayer request. Verse 18, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And the author's request for prayer here is suggestive of at least two thoughts. First, it suggests his humility. The fact that he has no qualms in soliciting the prayers of those under his pastoral care. That there is nothing in him of spiritual pride that would inhibit him from seeking the prayers of God's people, both for himself and for his associates in ministry. And in this regard, he implicitly acknowledges their own sense of deficiency, their own sense of need and dependence on the Lord. Pray for us. Pray for us, he requests of his readers. And beloved, the bottom line is that we all stand in need of prayer. And the reality is that No one, not even the strongest and maturest of Christians, is beyond need for the prayers of others on his behalf. We are not so strong, we are not so spiritually mature, we are not so advanced in the faith that we are beyond being prayed for. From his writings, we see this in the Apostle Paul, this Dependence on the prayers of God's people because as eminent and as effective as he was as an apostle, as a leader, a spiritual leader in the church of God, Paul was never hesitant in seeking the prayers of the brethren. From prison, he wrote to the Philippian Christians in Philippians chapter 1, 
He expresses confidence that through their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, things would work out for his deliverance. He requested of the Colossian Christians that they would pray for him and for his fellow laborers in the gospel, that God would open to them a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3. In asking the Ephesian Christians to pray, making supplication for the saints, he requested of them in the same breath, he said this, and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That was the Apostle Paul, stalwart as he was a man in the faith. He was strong, he was a leader in God's church, one of the foremost leaders of the early church, and yet here was Paul requesting the prayers of God's people. To the Thessalonian believers, the appeal in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at verse 25, brethren, pray for us. And if ever there were those, if ever there were some for whom we need to especially and particularly pray for, it would be those who are in positions of leadership. Why so? Because they are the ones who are at the forefront of the spiritual battle in which we are engaged as Christians. They, you see, are often chief targets of attack. That's why it's important we take this matter of praying for them seriously. The best thing we could do, one of the best things we could do for leaders is to pray for them. Pray for them. We owe it to them. Second, the writer's request for prayer suggests his conviction regarding the power of corporate united prayer. The fact that he's appealing to these brethren, the fact that he's appealing to these Christians suggests his belief, his firm belief, his conviction that there is power in prayer, not just power in prayer, but power in united collective prayer. As well, his assumption that the people he's addressing here, these Christians, they are people who are given to prayer. And that as part of the expression of their faith in God and of their love for the saints, they would pray as he requested of them. Now it is my belief, it is my personal belief, that all too often, many a Christian sort of take for granted this matter of praying for others when, asked, when, they, when, when persons ask for prayer. And why do I say that? Because it's sort of commonplace, it can become commonplace, where somebody says, pray for me, and we just take it for granted and say, okay, but the question is, do we really pray for them? And one of the most embarrassing things, um, somebody says, pray for me, and they say, okay, I'll pray for you. And then afterwards, uh, three weeks after, they said, man, boy, thank you for praying for me. Things worked out so wonderful. What do you then say? I didn't pray for you. Forgive me. <laughs> and it happens. It happens. So, you know, sometimes it's a good practice. It's a good practice sometimes. Somebody says, pray for me. Just pray for them right there on the spot. You know, um, it saves us in terms of our integrity. Um, we need to take prayer seriously. And when somebody says, pray for me, um, it's, it's really important that we do. Now, the tense of the verb pray denotes continuous action. It is in the present continuous tense. 
And the author gives two reasons as to why they should keep praying, why these Christians should keep praying for him and his associates. The first is cited in verse 18. If you'll notice verse 18, here's what he says, For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. The second reason is stated in verse 19. He says this, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. We have no idea of the particular circumstance, why he was not able to be with them. Suffice it to say, he saw an urgent need for these Christians to pray for his return to them. Now, how are we to understand the reason he gives in verse 18 as to why prayer should be offered for him and his associates in ministry? He says there in verse 18, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Well, perhaps against the backdrop of his teaching these Christians, pointing them to Christ, these Christians had given up a great deal. They had turned their backs on Judaism, and then he had to be contending with these false teachers, these Judaizers. The likelihood is that he was being maligned. They were perhaps assigning to him ulterior motives that he was teaching the way of Christ, that he was preaching the gospel because he wanted to have a following. He wanted to have influence on these Christians. Whatever he had in mind when he requested prayer for himself and his colleagues, appealing to his having a clear conscience, wanting to live honestly in all things, this much we can say, and that is, that there's nothing that's more valuable, nothing that's more potent than a conscience that is pure and clean. To begin with, where sin is harbored in one's heart, in one's life, where one is not conducting oneself according to the word of God, where one is not living as in the presence of God, then that leads to an unsettling of the conscience. And what happens when the conscience is disturbed? What happens when the conscience is unsettled? Well, among other things, spiritual health and growth is stymied. Spiritual health and growth is impeded, is retarded. One lacks the peace of God. One lacks the joy of the Lord. As John Calvin rightly stated, there's no greater torment than an evil conscience. My friends, where the conscience is not kept clean, where the conscience is not kept pure, this opens the way for all kinds of sins, all kinds of compromises, which eventually leads to a hardening of the heart. And indeed, one of the ill effects of a bad conscience, one of the ill effects of a conscience that is disturbed, a conscience that is unsettled, is that it, it hinders our prospect, it hinders our sense of readiness to stand before God in judgment. The Apostle Paul well knew of this in Acts chapter 24, 15 through 16. He cited the importance of having a good conscience in serving the Lord, in living for the Lord. Here's what he says in Acts 24, 15 and 16. He says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Here's what he says. So I always... Take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God 
and man. Early in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, as he gave his defense before the Sanhedrin, he declared, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. A good conscience is what the writer is speaking of here to the Corinthians. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. My friends, we cannot live for God. We cannot effectively serve God if our conscience is unsettled, if our conscience is disturbed, if our conscience is ill at ease. Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 19 that he should, here's what he told Timothy, keep a good, keep faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and have made shipwreck of their faith. There are many, my friends, who are not going forward in their Christian life. Why? Because they are hampered by a bad conscience. Some sin that is haunting them, some sin they have not taken care of, some sin which even though they have asked God for forgiveness, they are still wrestling with and it hampers them from serving the Lord. And I would suggest to you, my friends, if you know or if you happen to be in that situation, then here's the thing. God is greater than our hearts. God has promised in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive us our sins, he's to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And his forgiveness, when he forgives, he forgives. When he forgives, he does not hold it against us. When he forgives, he will not bring it up before us again. And more so for Christian leaders, if our conscience is not clean, if our conscience is not pure, we'll never be able to minister comfort and counsel to the flock. Never be able to preach with sincerity, with conviction, the whole counsel of God. Indeed, those who lead the church of God should be men of such clear conscience. They'll be able to confidently affirm as did the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, 26, 27, 33, and 34. Here's what Paul said. Here's what Paul said. He says, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. What Paul is suggesting here is this. When a man is living by the grace of God, close to the, close to the Lord, when he's keeping short accounts with God with respect to sin in his life, he can declare, he can preach the whole counsel of God, and he can do so with conviction and with sincerity. So having considered the author's prayer request, we look secondly at his benediction, verses 20 and 21. One of the most well-known benedictions in Scripture, these verses constitute the prayer of this writer, for those under his spiritual care. He has just asked them for prayer. Now what he's doing, he is praying for them as it were. And as we look at this benediction, verses 20 and 21, we see that consistent with his theme 
concerning the centrality of the person work of Christ, this prayer, this benediction, incorporates those Christological themes he has been expounding throughout this epistle. In this prayer of benediction, he calls their attention, notice, to God's work in their lives, and he points to Jesus Christ as their ultimate source of strength, their ultimate source of empowering grace to live for God to the glory of God. So let's examine this benediction briefly. First of all, notice how he characterizes God. He's praying for these Christians. What kind of God is he praying to? As he prays for them, here's how he characterizes God. He, 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 he suggests, first of all, or rather he says, first of all, that the God with whom they have to do is the God of peace. God is described as the God of peace. And it's not hard for us to figure out why, because God, through Jesus Christ, was the one who initiated peace with sinful humanity. According to Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, he came and he preached peace and so on and so forth. Having been declared righteous by God, we are having been declared righteous, we have peace with God. Colossians 1, verse 20, again talking about God making peace through Jesus Christ. He's the God of peace because he's the one who imparts to the hearts of believers who are right with him a sense of calm and serenity referred to in Philippians chapter 4 as the peace of God which passes all understanding. So God is preeminently and characteristically the God of peace. But second, how does he characterize God as he prays for these Christians? God is set forth as the God of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Look at verse 20b. He is the God who brought again the Lord Jesus. And why is this important? Why is it important that we hold as a conviction that God brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus? Well, within the context of the book of Hebrews, we can figure out why it is important. And it's important because of this, because the eternal priesthood of the Lord Jesus, whereby he is able to save to the very end those who come to him is predicated on the fact of his endless, indestructible life, according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 16. And this is what guarantees the believer's continual peace with God. Remember Hebrews 7.25? He says he's able to save to the very end. Why? Because he ever lives. And Hebrews chapter 7 verse 16, he has the power of an indestructible life. What is the power of the indestructible life related to? The resurrection from the dead. He came back from the dead and is coming back from the dead guarantees our eternal security. It sets seal to the fact that you and I are at peace with God. So God is set forth, number one, as the God of peace. Number two, is the God of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Now, Jesus, notice how we characterize as the Lord Jesus. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. This morning we're talking about shepherds, right? Pastors, elders. We are shepherds of the sheep, but our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd, according to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. 
And this title, The Great Shepherd of the Sheep, speaks of the caring, loving relationship which he sustains towards those who are his, those who have believed on him as Savior and Lord. That he is the chief shepherd, of course, as I said, points to his being their chief pastor, their chief guide. He refers to the blood of the everlasting covenant, and of course, referring to the shed blood of Christ, this is what we would say is the efficacious grounds on which a saving favor and peace with God was secured for the believing sinner. And it says, through the eternal covenant. What is he saying there? That phrase, eternal covenant, points to the eternally binding nature of God's promise of eternal life through Christ. The fact that Christ has been set forth as a propitiation, the satisfaction for sins, God has set him forth and God has pledged, God has declared that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The the term here, the eternal covenant, attests to the integrity of God, the faithfulness of God who cannot lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life which God has promised before the ages began. And then notice thirdly, verse 21, God is set forth, he's characterized as the God of sanctifying power. He's the God of sanctifying power. Sanctification here has to do with living for God, with our our conforming to his will. In verse 21, the writer says of God, notice what he says of God, underscoring that he's a God of sanctifying power. He says he equips you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Do you see in this the truth that you and I can and will never, can never, will never be able to live effectively for God. We will never be able to live the Christian life effectively. We'll never be able to serve God effectively apart from the enabling, empowering grace of God. We're reminded here that our ability to live as Christians, to live and serve God effectively, derives not from our skills, derives not from our ingenuity, but from God. God, my friends, is the one who provides us with all the resources we need to do his will. We learn in the A part of verse 21. The word equip, there in the A part of verse 21, means to perfect, to make complete, or to fit thoroughly. That's what the the word in the Greek means. It means to perfect to make complete or to fit thoroughly. What the writer is saying here is this. God gives us everything we need in terms of equipment, in terms of empowering, in terms of ability, so that we might be able to fulfill his will. This reminds us of Paul's words in in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where he told the Philippian Christians, and I'm sure of this, that he was begun a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he assured them, for it is God, here it comes again, here it is God, who is at work in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. 
for you and me to serve God then, it will not be according to our willpower. It will not be according to our strength. It will not be according to our good intentions. It will be to according to the enabling power and grace of God. And note the agency, note the agency through whom the empowering grace of God is mediated to us. Do you notice it? The D part of verse 21. It is through, through Jesus Christ. It is through him. Remember what he said to his disciples? He says, without me, you can do nothing. All of God's grace, all of God's blessings, all of God's empowering comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, if you look at the text, grammatically speaking, to whom be glory forever and ever could be going with God. It could relate to God, God the Father. As well, it could refer to the Lord Jesus. The question is, to whom is it referring? And I give a simple answer. And the answer is this, to both. And here's why. The answer is both. Because just as the Father and the Spirit are possessed of deity, so is the Lord Jesus. And hence, like the Father, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, He is entitled to glory. What a prayer. What a prayer. You know, what we have in Scripture in the various prayers really should serve as a model as to how we should pray for one another. Look at, what they, look at what he says. Look at the prayer. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Those are not just pious words. Those are real contents that should inform our prayers. And then finally, we look at his closing greetings. Verses 22 to 25. He says, I appeal to you, my brothers. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, I've written to you briefly, Hebrews, and we're in chapter 13. And I sort of felt nerdy yesterday, so what I did, I, I did a little investigation, and I discovered that in the Greek text, the epistle of Hebrews carries 4,935 words. It's generally believed that what we have in Hebrews is really a sermon. And I calculate that based on my rate of speaking, if I were preaching just what is here in Hebrews, not elaborating on it, but just delivering this sermon, it would take me, how long do you think? Well, I'll tell you. It would take me by my calculation 80 minutes, one hour and 20 minutes. So in other words, it would be two, two, uh, two sermons, morning and afternoon. Now, 
here is why. The author says, listen, bear with, bear with, this, bear with this exhortation. But that's what I've written to you briefly. Somebody says, come on. But here's why, really, it, properly speaking, it's a brief letter. Consider Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. You remember when we were in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and he was relating to these Christians concerning their immaturity, and then he brought up Melchizedek, the eternal priest of Christ, and he pointed to Melchizedek. Remember what he said? Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull and here. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5, he does a similar thing. He was talking about the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And here's what he said, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he cut out a whole lot of things. And he says, listen, I've written to you briefly. <laughs> Bear with the word of exhortation. You know, so sometimes the sermon is long, isn't it? And the temptation is to shrug it off and say, boy, this preacher is preaching the everlasting gospel. The gospel is everlasting, but properly speaking, we should make it everlastingly long, right? Now, here is a writer in all of these, what we have divided up as 13 chapters. Probably if you double space this epistle, and you put it on an 8, eight by 10, you get probably about, what, 15 pages, 20 pages. That's relatively short. Relatively short. Um, but he says, I appeal to you. Don't, don't lag under it. Don't, don't become tired. Bear with it. Because I've written to you briefly. But you know, in the same breath, he might also be saying, listen, bear with this word of exhortation. It has been weighty. You have been challenged. I've said some hard stuff. Don't shrug it off. Let it work. Bear with it. In verse 23, the author makes reference to Timothy's release. And the assumption is that Timothy was in prison. We don't know for sure. But he says, uh, this you should know, verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Timothy's release was news the author thought his readers should know about, especially in light of his coming to visit them soon. And no doubt, he figured they should know. He should know. Why? Because more important, Christians should be concerned about the well-being of their fellow believers. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. It's your business. It matters. He is one of us. He's a child of God. We are brothers with him. And I think you should know. Christians should have a caring regard for the well-being of others. And then his final words of greeting. He says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Here in this interchange of greetings, we see something of the far-reaching embrace of Christian fellowship. The writer is saying here, listen, do not just greet one another in your church. Do not just greet one another, those with whom you are familiar. But listen, Christians from Italy are sending greetings to you. What is suggested there is the wide embrace of Christian Fellowship, the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is not confined to any particular local assembly. The church of Jesus Christ extends way beyond those believers in Christ with whom you and I are personally acquainted. One of the greatest temptations 
is to think that it's just us. But God's people are everywhere. The Christian church embraces all those who, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, have obtained a faith of equal standing with us by the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, the church of Jesus Christ includes those, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord's and ours, the wide embrace of Christian fellowship. Christians should be concerned about the well-being of others. I think you should know about Timothy's release. Greet one another. Christians from Italy, send their greetings to you. And with this interchange of greetings, the author, notice verse 25, then commends his readers to the grace of God. Grace be with you all. This is the eighth time in the epistle that the word grace is found and what a note on which to end. Grace be with you all. What a note on which to end. Grace is a very important word throughout the word of God and really all Christian living, indeed all Eras of our lives, particularly our salvation from beginning to end, is all of grace. Every blessing, every endowment of divine blessing you and I receive from God stems from the grace of God. And surely this is a good note on which to end this sermon. And this is a good note on which to end our study in the book of Hebrews. So I would say to you, grace be with you all. Amen and amen.